Today's scripture reading is Ephesians 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness in our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us of the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Praise to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good morning, church. Good to be with you all. Uh, my name is Reed Kappel, and it's a joy to be with you. I serve as one of the pastors here at Latha, Latha Campus, and uh, it is a truly a joy and honor to turn to God's word together. And so uh, if you're new, if you're a guest, we're glad you're here. I'd love the chance to, to meet you and greet you. Come find me after the service. Love to say hi. Um, let me take a moment just to pray as we continue in worship and ask for the Lord to bless the hearing, the teaching of his word. So let us continue in worship and prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you in this moment right now that you are the God who has promised and declared the strangely beautiful truth that your strength is perfected in our weakness. And Lord, right now, as is, is evident even in my voice, as I am, am recovering, as I'm a bit exhausted from a week of being down and out um, from sickness, Lord, I just pray that you would grant me strength. Um, and Lord, would you, by the power of your Spirit, grant all of us the capacity and the ability to hear from you afresh. Lord, we thank you that your word is timeless and timely. We thank you that your word reveals light into our dark lives that it brings a heat of your love into our cold hearts and that it shows us who you are so that we might properly know who we are. And so, Lord, whatever baggage we bring into this space, what, whatever emotions we are feeling, whatever questions and doubts we are wrestling with, Lord, we ask that you would meet us in our unique positions and places so that we might be found by you, the God of all comfort and love and grace. And so, Lord, by your spirit, awaken us to the beauty and truth of your word revealed to us through the power of your spirit and through your servant, Paul. 
And so may this time be honoring to you and edifying to us. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so I was uh, out sick this week uh, for a few days. My goodness, it was not, not COVID-related, but it was brutal. So you'll just have to endure this kind of like strange Barry White voice that I've got going on. And so, uh, but, but it, was, it was pretty wild. This is the most drug-induced sermon I've ever written, just to be aware, uh, I think. Um, and so it is, this sermon is brought to you by NyQuil and Netflix. Uh, Netflix so it's inspired by that. But, um, so if you have your Bibles open, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, and by way of introduction, I thought I'd share a little bit of a story to kind of frame what we're doing here. Um, earlier this year, I took it upon myself uh, to remodel our, our kids' bathroom. And uh, it, was, it was a massive undertaking. I think I've shared some of that story. And so we gutted it down to the studs. The only thing we left was basically the tub. And so it was pretty nasty. And so uh, demolition is fun. It's really exciting work. But after you demolish something, you have to kind of rebuild it. And, and as I got into it, you know, we found mold. We found wood rot and things like that. And so it was, it was pretty nasty. And I've done a few kind of uh, projects like this before, and I know that like, when, you, when you discover broken materials like, like mold and wood rot and things like that, you have to replace that. If I were to have simply just gutted everything and then just, kind of, or just, just tiled over or painted over the broken stuff, that would not have been proper. Th- those problems would have come back, they would have cracked, they would have revealed themselves in some way, shape, or form. And so to that point, reconstruction without proper deconstruction, if you will, just perpetuates the problems. But, but simultaneously, if, if you just destroy and you just uh, demolish without reconstructing, well, you've just created a mess. And so, yes, you need to properly deconstruct, but if you just stop there, you just have chaos. You have to eventually get to the point where things are actually reconstructed and rebuilt, In the same way, during a time where many people are are questioning their faith in the church, outside the church, what they believe uh, during this season of what many refer to as deconstruction, I believe we need to have a healthy and biblical understanding of what it means to deconstruct and to reconstruct our faith. And so that's why we're beginning this series today in the book of Ephesians. Uh, deconstruction is something kind of strange. It's a popular practice nowadays, which I would argue that really, I mean, people within the church have been deconstructing their faith from the beginning. We're just kind of noticing it in a little bit more detail. But the question is, what is it? Is it good? Is it bad? Should I try it? Should I despise it? I don't know. And, and for some, it's an opportunity, to be honest, to kind of free themselves, liberate themselves from any kind of moral or religious constraints so that they can live their authentic lives however they so desire. But for others, there is a a sincere attempt to determine whether or not the faith that they have is a true, pure, unadulterated faith in Jesus or if it has been co-opted and hijacked by various cultural ideologies or persuasions or opinions of our own or of others. And so regardless of the motivation of what leads people to deconstruct their faith, to question it and perhaps abandon it, what is true is that we are in desperate need of reconstructing of faith. And to do so, we need a solid foundation to build upon, which is precisely why as we are exploring this series, Reconstructing Faith, we're coming to the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. I'll give a little bit of an introduction here in, in a moment. But what I want to do is spend just a brief 
moment sharing what, what is deconstruction? Because some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. And some of you are like, this is precisely where I find myself in this moment. And so what is it? Is it good? Is it bad? Like I said, should we try it? Should we despise it? What is deconstruction? And, and in many ways, what it is, honestly, is, is this reconsideration of what we believe, why we believe it, and how we've come to believe it, and if we still believe it. And so at base value, like it's, it's really just, it's neutral. It's not necessarily good or bad inherently. It all comes down to the questions of what, why, and where. What are we doing? If we're engaging in this work of deconstruction of asking ourselves what I believe, why do I believe it, and how have I come to believe it, and do I still believe it, we should ask ourselves, what am I doing in this process? And so what I would say is like, if, like it should lead you into a further digging into truth. To, to be uh, engaging in healthy deconstruction, there should be some level of, of intrigue and curiosity and an inquisitive nature into what you believe and why you believe it. Or if you're not actively pursuing something and you're just kind of passively coasting, well, I would say that's not really a healthy deconstruction. You're just kind of giving up. And I would say that's a very dangerous way to deconstruct if you're just simply kind of giving up and going along with the flow. Healthy deconstruction should involve learning, it should involve exploring, it should involve asking, it should involve dialogue and conversation, reflection. Unhealthy deconstruction just wants to take a break. And, and there's a goodness to that, like maybe I just need to like pause for a second, but if you're just wanting to kind of like put it in neutral and coast, you're not really deconstructing, you're just kind of giving up. But the second question of why, why are you deconstructing? What is the motivation behind it? Are you after truth or are you after autonomy? Are you just after your own freedom to live your life however you want? What is behind these questions about what you believe and why? Or to maybe put it another way, are we engaging in this work of deconstruction as a way to measure my life and the culture by the word of God or the other way around? Am I engaging in the work of deconstruction? Am I trying to measure God's word by my preferences and by the culture? What is it that is leading you into this season of questioning? Which again, is not inherently wrong. It just depends on the motivation that leads you there. But then the third question of where. Where is it taking you? And, and where do you anticipate this season of deconstruction and questioning? Where do you anticipate it taking you? Are you aiming for something? Are you hoping to arrive at something? Are you hoping to have some kind of resolution and conviction, or are you just aimlessly wandering? G.K. Chesterton uh, beautifully put it this way, merely having an open mind, because there are some people who just genuinely just want to live life in a constant state of curiosity and intrigue without ever landing on something of substance. He says, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. And I believe that that is properly the posture we should have if we find ourselves in a season of deconstructing. Is it leading us to a place of having a solid foundation to some degree? And so while I know definitions can be a bit pedantic and kind of dry, I think it's still helpful to know what we're talking about. So I, I'm offering just this very general definition of what I would refer to as a healthy deconstruction. And deconstruction would, would be this, a sincere attempt to consider what you believe and what has influenced your beliefs 
in hopes of knowing and following Jesus. Right there, that, like we would see that as like, that, that should be a necessary and helpful process. That's actually just Christian discipleship. It's asking ourselves what we believe and why do we believe it in hopes that it might lead us to a more sincere faith in Jesus. But, but so often is the case throughout church history and in our culture now that we are not simply measuring our lives by God's word, but rather the other way around. John Mark Comer, uh, the author and pastor, describes the, the, the kind of distinction between healthy and unhealthy deconstruction this way. He says, this kind of deconstruction, the healthy deconstruction, is where Jesus and others use scripture to critique the world's corruption of the church. But then there's another kind of deconstruction, and these are his words, that of Western millennials who use the world to critique the scripture's authority over the church. And so we just should be honest with ourselves, which camp do we find ourselves in? Am I trying to use God's word to critique the corruption in me and around me, or am I allowing my preferences, persuasions, and opinions to form and shape and critique the authority of God's word? And so when the goal of deconstructing faith is to properly and purely pursue Jesus for who he truly is, then that can be a beautiful and sanctifying process. Jesus, after all, if you think about it, when you read the Gospels, Jesus was a deconstructionist. He was challenging and confronting the various ways in which the Pharisees and religious leaders had come to distort the commands and the promises of God. If you think about even like the reformers in church history, what were they doing? They were, they were deconstructing the heresies that the church had come to believe and espouse and put forth as gospel truth. Think of the, the abolitionists. What were they? They were deconstructionists trying to deconstruct some of the, the, uh, the per, pernicious ways in which justice was being taught or how we understood the image of God that was creeping in from the culture but as well as in the church. And so if we're going to have any kind of authentic faith, if we're going to reconstruct a healthy biblical faith, it must be reconstructed on the foundation of who God is and what he has done. And only from there can we know who we are and what we must do. So, that, so that's kind of just framing where this series is coming from and where we're going in it. So that's why we're in Ephesians. Ephesians, in many ways, is this foundational letter that the Apostle Paul has given us that absolutely gives us this, this solid foundation to reconstruct our faith upon. So, so it's written by the Apostle Paul. The church in Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. And what's unique about Ephesus is it was a deeply uh, spiritual and religious community, but, but very much enmeshed in, in pagan worship, uh, centered around the great temple of Artemis. Uh, the temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the world. It's in, this is what it would have looked like. Uh, it's in ruins now. Um, but the temple of Artemis was the, the centerpiece of Ephesus. It was not just the centerpiece of the culture, but like the economy was wrapped around and centered around the worship of Artemis and the various activities that went along with it. There were actually two annual festivals that were uh, centered around the worship of Artemis that largely dealt with athletics and sexual perversion, which is interesting because Artemis is the goddess of chastity. So I don't know how that makes, puts together, but like, but in this culture, Ephesus and its culture and economy was centered around idol worship in many ways. But in addition to that, you have the syncretism with Rome, 
where Roman officials and rulers were, bego- were seen as gods themselves. And so you had this kind of obsession and worship of politics and political leaders. You had this obsession with athletics and sexual activity. And so like in one sense, you're like, gosh, this is a very foreign world. But in another, in another sense, it's a very familiar world that speaks to our current context. And so all the while, you have this group of young Christians in Ephesus who are facing these mounting pressures to capitulate or compromise on their faith as they're trying to follow Jesus in this strangely syncretistic pagan culture that is obsessed with sex, with power, with athletics, and politics. It does, in some ways, sound a lot like our world. And so Paul writes this letter to Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. And it's very unique in comparison to his other uh, epistles to the churches because this letter is not an occasional letter, meaning that he's not writing it to the church at Ephesus because of a particular issue or a moral failing or some kind of theological clarification. It's simply a very foundational truth of who God is and what he's done and who we are and how we are to live. And so in this letter, and what you'll see, this is really important, if there's one aspect of the letter to know before we jump into it, it is that Ephesians is almost like right down the middle, divided into two parts. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are what are referred to as the indicatives. It is what is true, what God has said to be true about himself and what he has done. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are the imperatives, what we are now to do in light of who God is. In fact, in her commentary on on Ephesians, theologian Lynn Kohick says this, we might summarize the contents of the epistle as indicative and imperative. The first three chapters offer descriptions of who believers are in Christ without question, without deviation. And the second half of the epistle presents the implications and ramifications of this testimony. And so as we go through Ephesians, you're going to see this pattern of who God is and what he's done, and from that... The imperatives flow. And and the importance of chapter 1, it cannot be overstated. Because so much of what flows out uh, in the imperatives of what we must do, how life is to be lived, is directly tied to this beautifully glorious run-on sentence that Paul gives us about who God is and what he has done. And so with that, that's probably the longest introduction in human history to the book of Ephesians. But we're going to look at, as we turn to chapter 1, this is the one idea I want us to see is that we must know God's story to know our story. If we want to know who we are, if we we are genuinely on on a journey of of self-exploration to know ourselves, we must start with who God is. We must know his story to know our story. And so to engage in healthy deconstructing of faith, in order to reconstruct faith, we must know his story before we know our story. And so so the first point that I want to get to as we come to Ephesians 1 is this. We must start with God. Regardless of kind of where you are in your faith journey, we must start with God. Paul begins his letter before he gets into any kind of instruction on on what Christians are supposed to be like and how they are to live. He begins by giving the attention, putting the attention upon God. He roots his very identity and purpose and calling in the character of God. Look with me again at verses 1 through 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places. So again, before Paul says anything about what we must do and how we are to live, he's trying to give us this glorious picture of who God is, that we might be enamored with him, that we might be so, we might behold his glory and goodness in such a way that we are captivated to want to know what this now means for our lives. And so any attempt to reconstruct our faith or to follow Jesus without first starting with God will get us into a whole world of trouble. And, and, and there's two, there's two, there's many things that could happen here, but if we don't start with God, if we start with ourselves and not God, we will fall into, uh, we'll basically be guilty of a, a logical fallacy, which I'll explain in a second, but also an existential complacency, which I'll also explain in a second. If we start with ourselves in trying to know ourselves and trying to know truth, we, we fall into what philosophers refer to or, or, uh, as the fallacy of composition, Meaning that when you argue from specifics to the generic, you fall into a, you basically run the risk of coming to false conclusions. True logic begins by starting with the generic and getting to the specific. So, for example, if I were to say all members of Christ's community pay attention during the sermon, which we know is not true, but let's, let's just assume that's true. But all members of Christ's community pay attention to the sermon. David is a member of Christ's community, therefore David pays attention during the sermon. That, that's a logical statement. But to reverse that, to say, David pays attention during the sermon. David is a member of Christ's community. Therefore, all members of Christ's community pay attention during the sermon. That's not logically true. But when we start with ourselves to try to understand God and truth, we fall into the trap of the logical fallacy of composition. But even more than that, if we don't start with God, if we don't start with God, we will find ourselves falling into an existential complacency. And what I mean by that is that if we start with ourselves and remove God from the picture, we are sawing off the branch that we're sitting on. We are removing the foundation upon which we are even able to know anything whatsoever. The source of truth and knowledge, if we remove that, we remove the ability for ourselves to even reason in the first place. But we also remove any objective basis to have meaning and purpose and truth at all. And, and this isn't just something that I'm saying. Like even, even those who are militant atheists recognize the meaninglessness of life objectively if there is no objective standard by which we measure truth, goodness, and beauty by. In fact, Richard Dawkins, in his famous book, The God Delusion, says this very honestly. There is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. If the world we inhabit... It's not rooted in the character of an objective God. Then he goes on to say, we are machines for propagating DNA. That's all we are. That's an honest statement. Similarly, Dr. Loyal Rue, he's a professor of, of religious philosophy, uh, suggests, and he recognizes, look, science has kind of eroded away any purpose of establishing meaning in this world. And so, so in, rather than embracing kind of the nihilistic, like, defeatism of that, like, life is pointless... What, what Professor Rue offers us is, is what he refers to as the noble lie. And so here's what he suggests. What I mean by the noble lie is one that deceives us, tricks us, compels us beyond self-interest, beyond ego, beyond family, nation, race, that will deceive us into the view that our moral discourse must serve the interests not only of ourselves and each other, but those of earth as well. What he's saying here is, is like, look, we know that life is meaningless because there is no God. And so we have to figure out a way to delude ourselves into thinking that there is meaning. 
And he goes on and concludes by saying, without such lies, we cannot live. He recognizes if we embrace a life without God, if we don't start with God, we will fall into despair. And so that's why we have to come up with some list of noble lies to convince us that life has meaning. And so we have three options before us. The hollow path of self-discovery, the inconsistent path of the noble lie, or the other path of starting outside of ourselves. We have to start with God. And if we're going to start with God, we have to know the story that he is telling us. And that's the second point I want to take us to. We have to know his story. Ephesians 1 is this glorious run-on sentence, as I mentioned, that Paul gives us in showing us who God is and the story of his redemption in this world. Look with me at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so we're getting a a bit of a a glimpse into the story of God. Verse 4 is this microcosm of the whole story of God. What you see is that God first is lovingly acting and moving towards us, and then in response, we seek to be like him. That order is so important. And if we miss it, we miss out on the heart of God and the story of God. And I mean, so the pattern in Ephesians of the indicatives, who God is, what he has done, that leads to the imperatives, who we are and how we must now live. That's the pattern of the book of Ephesians. It's the pattern of the entire biblical storyline. And so not only do we see the proper ordering of God's story, he moves, he acts first, and then we respond. We also see the power of this story. And so what is God doing as he moves towards us first? We see that in verses 5 through 7. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of Of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so what we see what we see here is the power of the story. The story of God is a story of redemption. It is not just the story of a creator, it is not just the story of a God who is the object of worship, it is the story of redemption. It is the story of God's glory made manifest in offering himself in the in the person of his son to be the sacrifice of sins for your sins and for mine. It is a story of redemption. Any attempt to reconstruct our faith without this central message of God's story will lead to a false understanding of the faith. To remove this aspect of Jesus being the redemption of our sins through his blood shed on the cross, to remove that, you you remove any semblance of having a faith at all. And so if you think about just the illustration, like if you imagine a recipe that your grandmother or grandfather, let's say they had a famous fried chicken recipe that you loved as a kid, and you want to recreate it and maybe improve upon it, and your first step is to remove the, the initial ingredient of a chicken, like, you're just like, that, like I, that's pretty integral. Like I'm not good at cooking, but I think you need a chicken to make fried chicken. And so like the idea to try to improve upon it by removing this very central piece you are going to do great damage to that recipe. In the same way, any attempt to reconstruct a faith without the central message of Christ redeeming us will not be a reconstructed faith at all. But Paul doesn't stop there. He does not just simply give us the power of the story, he also gives us the scope of the story. And in the same breath, Paul communicates that Jesus has died for our sins, but he also shows us the scope of what that sacrifice accomplishes in verses 9 through 10. 
making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to do what? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, what this means is that we, we tend to, in our Western individualistic culture, read into the gospel that this message is purely about God loving me and Jesus dying for me so that I may have a personal relationship with him. Is that true? Absolutely. But the scope of the gospel is far greater than just God loving you as an individual. God has come to redeem and restore more than just us as individuals. We see in Ephesians 1 the cosmic scope of God's redemptive story. Not simply in redeeming individuals, but the total redemption of all of creation. All things in heaven and on earth. Uh, we, we use the New City Catechism in our family. I know that many in Christ's community use the New City Catechism. There's a great resource our children's ministry has shared. They have an app as well that you can use. But one of the questions in the New City Catechism is this. What else does Christ's death redeem? And the answer is beautiful. Christ's death is the beginning of the redemption and the renewal of every part of fallen creation as he powerfully directs all things for his own glory and creation's good. And so if we are to reconstruct a faith, we must understand that the scope of the gospel is not just my individual sins being forgiven, although it is absolutely that, no less than that. But what we see in this beautiful story of God is that he has in his mind the redemption of all things in heaven and on earth. Any reconstructing of faith that does not consider the redemptive power of the blood of Jesus does not understand the scope of sin. And, and, and this oftentimes, this is oftentimes the reconstructing of faith or the deconstructing of progressive types. That we don't like the idea of, of our sin needing to be forgiven. We like the idea of God being a God who's going to restore all things and is, is concerned about cultural issues and justice. But this idea of my individual sins being forgiven, I don't like that. But conversely, any reconstructing of faith that does not consider the redemption of the physical world does not understand the scope of the gospel. And so this would, and in very generic terms, this would be more conservative types who, who like the idea of our individual sins being forgiven, but this idea of kind of the whole world being restored and redeemed, that sounds rather progressive. I don't like that. If we are to reconstruct our faith biblically, we must see that both of these things are true about the nature and the story of God redeeming all things through Christ. Amen? It is not just the redemption of individual sinners, it is the redemption of all of fallen creation. As Jeremy Treat says in his book, Seek First, many Christians today think salvation, think of salvation as leaving earth for heaven. But the story of scripture is quite the opposite. The message of the kingdom of God is not an escape from earth to heaven, but God's reign coming down from heaven to earth. The focus of God's reign is his people, absolutely. But the scope of God's reign is all of creation. And so what we see in this beautiful introduction to God's story that we must start with is we see the power and the scope of what God is doing through Christ Jesus. But what's so beautiful about Paul is as much as he might get a bad rap as just being this kind of like, like just kind of nerdy, egg-headed like theologian, Paul does not just give us abstract theology. He does not just give us esoteric philosophy to consider and ponder. He gives us a picture of the familial affection that the God of all creation has for us. And what we see in this story is not just a picture of, of theology on display. We see God relating to us, not simply as his subjects, 
not simply as his worshipers or his followers, but as his children. And so we, we need to start with God. We need to know his story. But lastly, we need to also enter his family. If we are going to properly reconstruct our faith, we must enter his family. This is a, a crucial truth to understand in order to understand Ephesians. But it's also a crucial truth to understand, to know the full story of, of the Bible and to know the heart of God. That God is a loving and redeeming, adopting father. Look with me at verses 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance. That, that inheritance is a familial term. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed. There is a promise here. It is secured. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The promise of inheritance is sealed by the Holy Spirit. This language is not just the language of, of a contract. It's not just the language of, of a God speaking to his subjects, but a father speaking to his children, which is why earlier in verse 5, the language that, that Paul uses to describe God's actions towards us is the word adoption. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now hear me, I, I am all for the study of theology. I am all for knowing the word of God. I'm all for worshiping God with our minds. But y'all, all, all of that is, for, is a means to the end of knowing, delighting, receiving, and rejoicing, and living in light of the fact that the God of all creation has called us his beloved and has adopted us as his sons and his daughters. The work of reconstructing faith must keep this truth in mind, that we are not just forgiven, absolutely we are, praise God for that, but that we are adopted and called his own. When I came to faith in Christ in college, one of the more operative and influential books I read was Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It is a classic and will continue to be, so I highly commend it to you, but in his chapter on adoption, I remember reading that and just weeping at the truth that the God of highest heaven has called me his beloved. So I want to read these words that continue to shape me now. It's a longer quote, but hear what Packer says about the beauty of this truth declared to us about God. You sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot, better, cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. 
And so church, even though in talking about deconstructing and reconstructing faith, it sounds like it's an intellectual endeavor, it sounds like it is purely an activity of the mind, and while it is no less than that, it is not a mere exercise of philosophy and theology, it is a work that will deeply define us, shape us, and in the end, save us. And even as I say that, I know that faith can feel implausible. I know for various reasons, whether it's doubts you have, there's wounds that you have experienced, the hypocrisy in the church, the abuse of leadership, the division within the church. But friends, what I would say, and I've said this before, do not fall for the trap of allowing Christians and culture to measure the gospel. But rather, may we allow the gospel to measure culture and Christians. And so you still may have questions, even as I say that, you still may have questions, you may have doubts, you may have pushbacks, and that's okay. But what I would say to you is to continue with us, is to add your doubts and questions to ours. Would you be at least willing to start with God? Would you be willing to know his story in order to know your story? And would you consider the offer he makes you in adopting you into his family now and forever? I want to close with these words by the hymn writer Fanny Crosby and her hymn simply titled Adopted. Listen to how she says this. Oh, what a father, how tenderly gracious. Oh, what a savior to make me his care. Though I have slighted, rejected, and grieved him, still he permits me his kingdom to share. I am adopted, oh, wonderful love, heir to a heritage purchased above. Tell it my soul and joyfully sing, I am a child and an heir of the king. Amen? This is the faith that we are reconstructing. This is the foundation that we are building our lives upon. My hope and prayer is that we would come to see this truth, that the God of highest heaven has called us his own. May we see that truth, believe in it, and live in light of it. Let us pray. Father in heaven, my goodness, what a beautiful privilege it is to begin our prayers to the creator of all things with that title. We praise you and thank you that through Christ Jesus, You have made a way for us to be brought into your family by forgiving us and cleansing us. Lord, we thank you that by the power of your spirit, you have enabled us to call you Father. We thank you that the scope of your work of redemption in this world is far beyond just us being rescued and redeemed, but to see this whole world renewed and restored. And so, Lord, what I ask in this time by the power of your spirit, that you would awaken within those who are in Christ the depth and the beauty and the power of your adoptive love towards us. May we receive it and live in light of that truth. And Lord, for those who are far off from you, for those who are unsure about you, would you break through the clouds of doubt and darkness to reveal your love in the person of Jesus so that we might find life in you. Lord, would you do this for our good and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen.